All right, so I'm at the Red House with Tiffany Thompson, and thanks for coming over. It's my pleasure. So, where's your story start? Iowa. Iowa? Iowa. I like to call myself and my brothers Iowinians. <laughs> is that the term? I like to think it is. <laughs> <laughs> so you're from Iowa? From Iowa, yep. Born in Dubuque on the Mississippi River, sort of like more towards Illinois than the other side. Okay. Yep. How long did you live there? Uh, we were there for six years. I'm the youngest of three, so my family as like an entity was there for 13 years, but I was at the tail end of that until mm. I was six years old. All right. So then what was, what was your next home? Uh, Moscow, Russia. Really? Yep. All right. Well, that's an interesting place to jump off. <laughs> 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 More interesting than Iowa? I mean, come on. Quite a lot different. It is very different. <laughs> yes, this is true. Moscow, Russia. Moscow, Russia. Yeah. 1992. Uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Why? Yeah. <laughs> we often ask that question to my father. No. Uh, well, my dad is a pastor. Okay. So he had had a church that he was leading and working with in Iowa. And he had always sort of had an interest in living overseas, and um, his there was an opportunity to move to Moscow in '92 after the fall of the Iron Curtain, mm. and sort of all different sorts of you know types of communities, religious communities came into Moscow after post-communist uh, era, and my dad felt like that was the next phase for our family, so he. Uh, we moved there kind of, you know, you raise support when you're moving kind of for ministry work like that, Mm -hmm. but you don't necessarily know exactly what you're going to do until you get there. So it's only been in the last few years that my brothers and I have like realized how entrepreneurial our parents really were because it was like three kids. This is back when there weren't weight limits on suitcases. And so we literally had like two suitcases per person. Each one was like 120 pounds Mm -hmm. and like massive and we like landed at a like a hotel hostel somewhere as a family and it was just it was pretty crazy but my parents are um they have a lot of faith and uh I never remember feeling afraid even though it was like I look back and I'm like that was total chaos there was this sense that like we were there to you know have a purpose and Um, I think as a six-year-old, I just was like, all right, let's do this. Let's play soccer and eat pickles and get chocolate treats. So that was most of my sixth grade, six, six six-year-old self was focused on that. That's, uh, yeah, that's quite, I would imagine a huge culture shift for (laughs) a, like a life defining, probably personality impacting culture shift. Yeah. People would say that maybe we can blame my quirks and eccentric personality on the Moscow, Russia of the nineties. I can also relate to their plight. Like, uh, as I was telling you, my grandmother coming from Cuba and the resentment, I think that lingers for communism and stuff. And Mm. I certainly have some of that myself. So, uh, so I, so that's interesting to hear that your parents chose that as sort of like a like the the prime ground for what they thought where they thought they could be useful. Yeah. Uh, so how long were you in Russia? We were there for five years. Okay. Um, and always like based in Moscow. And my mom had sort of a health crisis, 
and it wasn't we couldn't address it there. So that was really the only reason that we came back to the states. Uh, I think my parents would probably still be there if that moment hadn't sort of shifted the trajectory of the family. Mm. Um, but we moved to Austin, Texas, which is where my dad got his next job, and uh, we didn't have any family in Texas. Had never been Texans. And landed there as a sixth grader, and uh, mm. um, I was homeschooled when I was younger. And so that year, I was still homeschooled. And then finally, I like transitioned into a private school and then into a public high school. But uh, yeah, sixth grade was a year of many transitions in the in my life. I feel like I can see Texas in your eyes a little bit. You like, know, I, I, I take that as a compliment. Yeah, I love I love Austin, Texas. Like I still have a slight draw and uh, I feel like the more I'm around people from the South, the thicker that like little intonation in my voice becomes. Mm -hmm. So being in North Carolina now, it's definitely a lot stronger than it was (laughs) when I was in New York. So, yeah, I love Texas personally and people uh, will often give me, uh, they'll they'll often question that, I guess for, for different reasons or whatever, but (laughs) You know, like, I think Texas is cool as hell, and uh, Austin in particular, but really mm. I spent most of my time in, in San Antonio, and I really loved it down there yeah. as well. And and what I mean by that, about about seeing it, is, like, there's, a, there's like, this independence, you mm. know? There's this, like, self-assuredness that comes with Texas yep. that you, it seems, have to have when you spend much time there or something, and I love it. Yeah. I love their attitude about, you know, like, sort of independence in that way. Definitely. And San Antonio, I think particularly so because the downtown is sort of anchored around the Alamo. Right. right? And so you kind of Austin downtown is more of like a creative, you know, keep Austin weird. It's now much more corporate and sort of startupy. But, uh, I think San Antonio has a really particular culture and its size is really accessible, even though it's a big city, it's a little Mm -hmm. bit, you know, much smaller than Austin in my memory. Um, so yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Yeah, and two about te- like two about San Antonio. People, I think people don't realize in certain areas of Texas the mixed culture it is, mm, or whatever. Like, mm-hmm. or that's something that maybe we don't always get a glimpse of when we're not in Texas or whatever. But it's such a, it's like a bicultural sort of thing, and it's it's cowboy, but it's like very Hispanic and American cowboy yeah. stuff. And I, San Antonio was always that to me. And it was, it was just like, wow, this is really evident. Like mm. it feels like a multicultural place. And, and I dug that about it. And how, how long were you, and you've just toured through there? Have you uh, ever sta- lived there? I dated a girl that lived there. So okay, I was so down there some, a lot. Some stays. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. And I, I just fell in love with it. I probably, I mean, I, I really thought about moving there for a time, but okay. didn't end up doing it. Uh, but did get to play down there some. So nice. So you were okay. So you were in sixth grade, and when you when you moved there, you said, "Yep." When did you? When did music like start? Maybe we should like I should start looking for that in for your that thread. Yeah, in your story. <laughs> Other than my geographic cosmopolitan nature, yeah. which is my best cocktail date, you know, st- story starting point. They're like those are many random places and epic ones. And so epic, far. big yeah. deal. You know, big moments. Well, other than Iowa, but Field of Dreams. Yeah. I mean, it's literally where the dreams are made. You yeah. know, so. Um, yeah, well, my grandpa is actually a piano. Well, he's passed away now, but he was a piano salesman. So he played bass, upright bass in like the big band era. 
And when he was in the military, that was his role was to be in like the military band. Hmm. And he loved music, played it through his thirties into his forties when he had a family and was like in the, the late night sort of jazz big band club scene. And he lived, I think at the time they were in New York for part of that. And then they were in Ohio for part of that. And, uh, he came to this place where he had four kids and it was like just not sustainable really for him to like keep going with the music as his full-time career. And he became a piano salesman Mm. and he ended up getting like licensed by Yamaha and becoming like a Yamaha dealer in Covington, Kentucky. And then he had some, some shops like across the river over in Cincinnati and different places. Mm. So we really, my brothers and I all play instruments. Our cousins are all pretty musical and we really point to him because he created this like legacy in the whole family around music as like a part of your life. Um, but he was always also like concurrently very critical of us when we wanted to do it full time because mm. he had made that shift yep. and he was never like super wealthy, but he had created a stable, like middle-class American upper middle-class American life through this shift to being like, a businessman. So I think whenever he heard that different grandkids were like going to do music full time or were trying to get record deals or moving to Nashville, he was always like a little skeptical and like weary of that whole thing. But, Mm -hmm. um, it was really interesting that it actually, it really started with him. And then he made sure that each of his children had a piano in their home. And then those children made sure that their kids were taking the piano lessons. And that's how we sort of got to the situation we are in now. Mm. Okay. Yeah. All right. So even before ever leaving Iowa, that music was already a little bit a seed that was in there yes. to some degree. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So then you're in Austin, Texas. Yeah. And then, uh, I guess, <laughs> I guess, I guess what happens <laughs> What happens next? So we're in Austin and I had started piano when I was a little kid because there was always the piano there, right? Uh And I had been uh, a kind of a, not quiet, I was very, you know, I was an outgoing kid, but I did a lot of like internal thinking and poetry in my journals. And I just, I loved writing in my journals and like expressing all the things there. My brothers are four and five years older than me, so they were like really close friends and always playing together. Mm. And I found myself, I had lots of friends and I was playing, but I loved kind of creating these little things myself, just in my own private spaces. And when we moved to Austin, I had this sense that I was like kind of like not excited about piano anymore and I wanted to pick up guitar. So I ended up getting a guitar. My grandpa split the cost with me. I still have this Martin. It's like a jumbo because that was the one he got wholesale through Mm -hmm. his system even though it's like not the right guitar for me but I love it and I've written a lot on it so I pick up guitar I get this guitar and I start taking lessons and that's really where I started songwriting okay is the few the somehow the like literal kind of presence of the guitar and that embodiment for me I around 12 13 started taking these poems and this like journaling habit and merging it with these new chords that I was learning with the guitar mm-hmm. and sort of, you know, learning some jewel songs or picking up some, you know, different, different tracks and stuff like that. So it was really, that was the moment when I realized, Oh, these feel separate, like practicing, you know, floral or something and then writing in my journal. But 
the guitar created a place for that to come together for me and be what I still find to be the most life-giving for like force of expression in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I would probably say the same. Mm. Uh, and I, I've also, I also, it led to the guitar different ways and mm-hmm. different exposures, but yeah, ultimately the guitar kind of does something and opens this sort of crossroad between these things mm. in, in this way. So, so you already were writing poetry. It sounded like, yep. That's interesting. Uh, so, Looking back at some of your earliest songs or your first steps into songwriting, yeah, do you are those songs terrible or were they? Did you feel? Do you look back at them and feel like, well, there was something there? Like, mm. what were they? What were they like? Um. Well, I do think that they were terrible, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm not ashamed of that. And one of my favorite uh, sort of songwriting instructors at Berkeley, Pat Patterson, he uh, has, I took a class of his in Nashville, like a master class there. And he said, never make fun of your early songs because they're what gets you to your hits. And you, you have to write a lot of bad music in my personal experience as a, not a savant, Mm. um, to get to good music. And you have to write a lot of good music to get to like a single great song. And then maybe you tap into that mystical reality a few times in your life would be, you know, unbelievable. Uh, so I really believe in as somebody who this is a craft songwriting is a craft for me. Um, and I love it. It is uh, a thing that I think builds really slowly over time. So those early songs, I recorded them. I have like records of them, but they're not available online anywhere. And I just sort of say like, at least I was trying, Yeah, you know? And, um, and I feel like that's been most of my artistic journey is like, just keep on trying. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> hear you completely. <laughs> I, I, mine are, mine are on a hard drive and I hope no one ever hears them. Mm-hmm. Some of the worst, I mean, especially singing too. some of the worst singing oh I've ever gosh. heard on some of that earliest material. But you said something interesting. Uh, you've said a lot of interesting things, but you said something I really noticed. One yeah. that that songwriting is a craft for you uh, as opposed to what, I guess, like, is there a different way of approaching songwriting that you're aware of that you're like, I don't relate to that. I relate to it in this particular way. Mm. Well, I love reading. Uh, it is. It, I find books to become my friends. I feel like I know the authors, and they are sort of these co-journeyers on my artistic path. So somebody who's really shaped my thinking on uh, writing is uh, Stephen Pressfield, who wrote The War of Art. Mm. And um, he, he has this whole concept around going pro. And basically that the difference between an amateur and a professional is that the professional wakes up every day and slays the effing dragon, which is his term of resistance, capital R in the creative life. So it doesn't matter what, uh, sort of your medium is or the degree of success is his, is his hypothesis. It is about, taking seriously the daily work, the daily war with art creation. Hmm. And so I think that in the life of um, prose writers, there's a lot of thinking around that. And Lamont has a book called Bird by Bird, which is all about the process of writing novels. Um, George Saunders has an amazing book about Russian short stories that is 
all about his, like a lot about his journey to finding his voice. And I think that the long form of prose writing and novel writing, which Stephen Pressfield wrote of The Legend of Badger Vance, and it's just, that was his big hit, but it came late in life for him. Mm. So I think there's something about that posture on like, this is a body of work and I don't know which part of it might pop or peak. Um, but I do know that I can be like faithful and responsible to keep on getting better at the craft and that that is its own reward, just getting better at the craft, but also that the sort of writers that I connect with, that's their path that they have set forth in their own sort of mediums and ways. That makes sense. It does. Yeah. Yeah. So I hope that I'm not asking you something that you've already answered by saying that. Uh, I don't think I have, but I guess so. Maybe you can tell me how this being exposed to these ideas and this attitude about professionalism, this attitude about about maybe resisting the resistance stuff and yeah. this this uh, mentality of the professional or whatever. Yeah. Uh, is that pretty much how you've been, is that, have you pretty much embodied that philosophy into your creative process from an early stage? That's a good question. I don't think I had, I didn't have the reference points. Like I've gotten a lot more into reading these sorts of, um, creative process books in the last couple of years. Okay. Um, but I always took the sort of process of creating really seriously and I have, um, I, my first job that I ever had as like an intern at, in college is actually as an analyst at the CIA, which is like a whole other rabbit trail that we can go down. Um, this just gets weirder and weirder. <laughs> Welcome to my life. Um, but I think that look, I've been look, doing some like journaling and reflection on like, how has way led on to way in my life, you know? And I think that I've always been really interested in like words and ideas and how that, how writing sort of brings people together or brings ideas to life that wouldn't have been there if somebody hadn't done the work of writing down those ideas. And so the agency that was like a very structured and analytic place, but in my songwriting, I think I've taken some of those approaches and done them and like been sort of naturally more structured and analytic in the way that I think about my craft, mm. which, um, can seem a little bit, uh, just, you know, like, Oh, well that seems very, you know, where's the expression or where's the freedom. So I don't think it's necessarily a strength, but it is like a, a distinctive approach that I bring to it. Um, that is a kind of a part of a broader personality type, I think. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's keep building on it. And then I, I do have like 14 questions <laughs> from, from the last 10 seconds or sure. 10 minutes of what oh. we just talked about. But, uh, before we, before we get off of just like the story of you so far, yeah. uh, where we're at, you're in Texas, you picked up this, uh, this, you picked it, you started to pick up music more and more along the way. Yep. And somehow you get from Texas to, uh, Berkeley, it sounds like. So how did that happen? So I, um, in, in Texas, I recorded my first record and actually didn't go to Berkeley. I took a master's class from Pat Patterson Got you. in Nashville, Okay. but I went from Austin to Wheaton, Illinois, which is like a small private school outside of Chicago. 
and my it was like a family school. My brothers both went there. My parents met there. My uncle at the time was an art professor there. Um, so there were a lot of anchors. My grandma lived there in the area at the time. So I ended up just kind of going there from, from, you know, high school in Texas, big, huge high school to this like smaller private school. And I studied international relations cause I had had this international background mm. and I was really interested in like, how do people do what they do and what makes the world tick and these sort of big questions turns out international relations is more like economics and political science so looking back I wish I had been like a psychology major or a Mm. sociology major I think that's much more where my life journey has taken me but it was the international relations major that ended up getting me the internship at the CIA which has brought a lot of fruit in my life so um I don't regret it, but I definitely did not choose the right major for my interests and personality. So that's where I ended up for college. Gotcha. Was at Wheaton. Uh-huh. Um, do you want me to keep on the geography trail? Or? Yeah, yeah, let's get to, let's get from, let's, you can give me the short version of like how you got from Illinois okay. to North Carolina if you want. Okay. And then, I'll, then I have a then bunch we'll of indulgent right, questions. That sounds good. So... The internship led to a job. I moved and lived in Alexandria, Virginia okay. right after college. And I was there for five years working full-time at the CIA and playing out in the Northern Virginia scene. So <laughs> It's such a trippy. It's really hard for me to picture a person working at the CIA and moonlighting, playing music. That's was, crazy. I mean, I have so many friends from the office who would like play at my open mic nights and... There was a really thriving sort of D.C. music scene. I mean, it's always had a great music scene, but there was a singer-songwriter that was hosting this thing called the D.C. Nine, and his name's Justin Trawick, and a wonderful Americana folk artist and an anchor in that community, and Mm. he would host these shows with nine artists sharing like a three-hour bill. And he modeled it a little bit off of the 10 out of 10, which was 10 artists from Tennessee that was a platform that a bunch of artists, 10 artists, did... uh, many years ago. So that was Virginia. Finally, the dissonance of sort of the full-time job and this career that I was trying to build just became too much. And I knew I needed to really take the risk of going for my music Mm full-time. So I resigned from the agency and within a year I had moved to Nashville, Tennessee. So I lived in Nashville for about four years doing music full-time there and like driving for Uber, playing Broadway, all the things. And finally came to a place where I was really I was at a low point for a variety of reasons we can get into. Um, but I was recruited and I'm to uh, work for a company that was based in New York. So I moved to New York city and lived and worked there for five years until I moved to Winston Salem last November. Okay. So it sounded like there was something about this, this low point in Nashville that you say we can get into. sounds like, (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like there's something there to get into. Sure. Yeah. I mean, what was that? Um, Good question. (laughs) So I had a a period of time where I really, I had tried to do my music as Tiffany Thompson in Northern Virginia and just had not felt like I was finding my voice totally. Like I wasn't super confident in the records that I had put out. I had probably recorded and released, I don't know, 30, 40 songs like up to that point. But it wasn't really like... I didn't feel like it was clicking. Now looking back, I think my journey just is a slower path. And I actually see that as being really important, but I was really at a place of disillusionment. And uh, I met a producer in Nashville who was a pop 
track maker. And we started testing my vocal on more like pop instrumentation, sort of like Katy Perry met Coldplay. Yeah. And I really loved the sound of my voice there, but it was so different than my past work that it felt like it needed to be a whole rebrand. So I dropped Tiffany Thompson and I went by my middle name, which is Danae. So I was like 30 years old, trying to restart my career as like an indie pop artist who only wore white and like played with two musicians only wearing black and like had, it was an amazing journey, but it, I never really embodied it. And it just ended up being, um, I didn't have the sort of, um, I don't know. I I think I came to this place of saying, I don't really know if this is actually my true voice. Mm. I think I learned a lot through it about my own voice and my creative process and worked with amazing people on the project. But I was broke kind of emotionally and definitely financially by the end of that journey. And I needed to get a full-time job. And I knew that. And I was like, I'm not sure if I'm going to do music anymore because it just had taken so much and I had such heart for what we were doing with the that to see it sort of flounder and not return on the investment was so disheartening. I just didn't know whether or not I could kind of like go through another round of that. Um, almost like an abusive relationship, you know, you're just like, I got to get out of this and it's, it's unhealthy now. Yeah. So weird how much, uh, different artists, you know, like kind of reach like, that the artistic journey seems to have a lot of commonality from one artist to another, you mm. know? And it was probably around age 29, age 30 that I approached a similar, I, I did a event. I went down a similar road mm. and it's, it's just interesting to hear you talk about that. Cause that was really kind of, I think at the end of it, something similar to what I experienced with it. Uh, I didn't go by a different name, but I did go by, I did do a rebrand and sort of, treated my art differently for the mm. first time almost stepped into the role of a yeah of this like archetype or something and or this this uh statement person mm. i don't know what it's hard to ex- explain but the way you said i didn't embody it totally it was it was something similar to that it was something that could be embodied instead of something that was genuinely me and it's interesting that we both did that i guess around age 30 mm-hmm. and that it ultimately wasn't fulfilling in some way or something. I wonder what that means. Hmm. I think there's, I think humans, you know, we go through these cycles of, of life cycles of existence and we're not just like linear creatures. I don't think, I think there's like a real, uh, sort of circular journey that's occurring in us. And I love the framing of the hero's journey Mm -hmm. and just that it's not something that you do once, you know, you do it many times. And so it's like maybe, at that age, there's a natural sort of like cycle that's breaking open again, a sort of need to express anew or go deeper into the forest. And we're through that journey. Sometimes we come out, we always come out changed, right? But what is it in us that is changing? And um, have we found a deeper place of ourselves? Or did we kind of go off and try to build something that actually isn't a core part of our true self? I think that that only is learned after you've gone through the cycle and you sort yeah. of look back, you know? And is that what you felt like? Is that how you, this Danae project, mm-hmm. do you feel like it looking back on it now, was it a different part of you or was it like something that totally was not you? Well, I ended up 
pulling down the whole project and re-releasing the songs that had come out as singles under Tiffany Thompson on an EP called Danae. Hmm. And I did that because I did feel like the songs were some of my best recorded work. But the way that I had gone about trying to like play them out live in a real like sort of indie pop composition, just that was the thing that was the disconnect. And I'm a live artist. Like yeah. I love playing live. I love singing live. That's where I build fans. It's where I live out my vocation, I think, as like a human. And so to have created a project that literally was like required tracks to be delivered and was ideally in a venue that was like made for DJs because the sonics of the music Mm -hmm. was like oriented towards like that pop container. That was the big thing that I feel like needed to, I learned through that was um, I don't need to do like pop records in the box to have my voice come through and maybe my voice is actually deepening and maturing and growing. And there's a much more sort of like Americana pop record in the future that I could record. That would be the fuller expression, but I only got there with the bad. (laughs) So kind of that quote takes me back. Danae was an amazing project and it, I needed it to do the next project. If that makes sense. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I think I view my, my experience that way uh, as well though. Um, there are things about it. I wish I'd have had higher standards for it or something. So my, mm. my project was like, uh, I embarked on recording a double album called life lessons. Okay. And it was, I usually write stuff that, I mean, like I don't, we haven't actually stated this, but you and I are kind of meeting each other for the first time. And really we don't know anything hardly about each other at all. So yeah, we're covering some ground here. Um, so, <laughs> so, uh, anyway, I'm more usually known for acoustic, folky Americana stuff that's kind of on the beautiful poetic side, you know, okay. like uh, you know, pretty nostalgic stuff. And with this life lessons thing, it was like um, I started writing all these really um, like sarcastic, sacrilegious, uh, like vulgar sort of songs that were that were this reflection of what i thought of as modernity or something okay interesting so kind of was it a concept record to you it was okay yeah and it was something i thought could be expanded and like i thought when i was doing it i thought that it was the path that i was going to be on for a while Hmm. but it turned out to just be a one one project thing partially because once i got the album out i just felt so depleted by it and so not married to it or something or Hmm. like not exactly it's like I wasn't as proud of it as I felt like I expected to be. Hmm. And I think I ex- I expected at the end of that project to be like, okay, cool, like this was a significant achievement, but it didn't really feel like a significant achievement. Um and then I and then I just had a lot of questions about what I was doing and the messages hmm. I was kind of putting out and I was felt like I was kind of poking a bear, you know. Uh this was like at the early part of of uh cancel culture I think and I was almost kind of making a statement about that too like like playing with um playing with 
controversial ideas within the music to see what would happen kind of thing. Got it. And it's like, I don't know if that was a great idea. I don't know. I don't know if anything's a great idea, but <laughs> particularly their ideas. Though, I do. Yeah. And you followed it through though. Did I you, did. did it feel like, okay, I, I, did you feel a sense of completion with the work? Like you kind of, you released it, you got to the end of it and maybe almost like profound completion. Like that was the process. I don't want to push this as like my platform or how did that experience go? It was, well, the only time I remember it feeling done was at the release show. Mm. And it still, I, I associated a lot of, there was a lot of anticipation for that still for me. And then like after the release show, not only did the release show not go exactly perfectly, but after the, that thing, after the album was like, it's out now. I, like I say, I just, I didn't feel like it was a celebration. Got it. It was like something else. Yep. And then I was, then I was just not sure anymore. And, mm. uh, it took a lot of, it took a lot of, uh, I don't know, effort to guide myself back. Like eventually I found myself back in this territory of Americana and something more acoustic, but it took some, it took a lot of time to figure out if that was where I was going to go back to or not. Yeah. I don't know why it is, but it seems like when you, when you leave what seems like your true self for a time hmm. going back to it is like as an artist is sort of like oh no like am i retreating to my comfort zone mm. you know what i mean yeah i've been i've actually been thinking a lot about this concept of going back mm. and um i this past year became a certified instructor of a japanese art called kintsugi which is where you take like broken ceramics and you mend them with uh, like a golden seal basically. And it started in like the late, well, it started in China actually went through Korea. And then in the late 16th century, it became popularized in sort of the Japanese tea ceremony culture. And it, the kind of core of the art form is about, you're not fixing things, you're mending them. Hmm. And the new creation that comes after the break isn't the same thing as the one before. You're not going back to the mug's previous existence. You're not trying to return to a place. You're taking the fris the fractures and you're creating them into an actual like new thing that's only possible because of the break. So it's this really beautiful metaphor for life and um comes out of the wabi-sabi tradition in Japan of like imperfection is beauty, which is that whole like aesthetic is like, it's not about symmetry. It's actually about sort of the little imperfections are the thing that create the most high quality art. Hmm. And what you were saying of, you know, how you get back there. I think that Kintsugi has really been a core part of my journey over the last couple of years of saying, okay, I'm not trying to like return to being the Nashville singer songwriter or return to being the CIA artist. I'm trying to take all these often disparate pieces and mend them into this new creation that is like a fuller expression of that true self. Mm. If that makes sense. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Um, where, how did you, 
I love, by the way, that, that with this particular art, and maybe this is the maybe this is true for a lot of more folk art or a lot of more traditional kinds of art. But mm-hmm. I love the idea of the the practical and fi- like philosophical message associated with a certain practice within the art. Yeah, uh, and I I don't I don't know if I'm aware of I'm I'm sure I could I could think up my own metaphors, my own ways of talking about what I do and be like, well, this is what it's all about. But really, I don't practice a skill that's that explicit about it. Mm. How did you end up involved in that? So when I moved to New York in that sort of restart season, I had a full-time job with an executive leadership company there, which I was hosting their events. So it was sort of a, a mixture of the work of being a performer and an event person Mm -hmm. with that CIA background of like issues and topics and stuff. So I got into that work and by being in this executive world, a friend of mine was like, you should reconnect with this painter that was in New York, uh, Makoto Fujimura. He's a Japanese painter. And we ended up doing sort of a collaboration in New York that moved through this executive community that I was working with and wove into his art worlds. And then a couple of years later, so halfway into my time in New York, he was the one who brought this idea of Kintsugi into the communities of artists that we were with in the Manhattan area. Mm. And he had um, his form of art is called Nihanga, which is like where you pulverize minerals and then paint in this sort of like abstract expression. And he is a contemporary painter. So he uses these minerals to do this beautiful work. And in his journeys back to Japan to sell his art, uh, he met a Kintsugi master who he just resonated with on like a deep sort of like soul level. And they are the ones who started the Academy Kintsugi. And uh, that's where I got certified. So it was a really like very meandering line, but kind of moved through friendships and collaborations. And it's really anchored in that particular mentor and friend who, uh, was a Japanese painter is a Japanese painter. That is very cool. Yeah. When you practice something like that, are you, are you always aware of that key, that the philosophy underneath it and sort of Mm. like, what's that like? Mm -hmm. Well, something that I've been learning about is, um, the word somatic. And I always, I think about my life as being very sonic and somatic is about, uh, kind of like the physical body and the move, the movements of the body. Hmm. And so there are like somatic therapies that are like body movements to help you sort of like restore mend trauma, these different parts of you. And I am not a dancer. (laughs) And so I just wasn't around that sort of framing before. Um, But when you are doing somatic work, you really, you are acknowledging there's something physical that's happening and there's something sort of psychological or spiritual that's happening. And so I think that I am like conscious of those two levels in the practice of doing Kintsugi because I'm not a ceramics artist, Mm -hmm. so I don't claim to be, but I am a maker And I do feel like my vocation is one of sort of being an inspirational artist and one that like kind of brings meaning and builds bridges. So doing that through a different modality, a different medium, but that still has sort of a similar intention feels strangely cohesive to me, if that makes sense. But it wouldn't make sense for me just to like randomly be like mending chipped mugs 
but because it's like in this really purposeful sort of like the art and the philosophy are there together, it feels very cohesive. I feel like that that connects well to something I was I was uh, reflecting on earlier with something that I was something that I was trying to like learn some stuff from, and leads me to a good question that I think I can pose to you because it's it's honestly a problem in my life that I'd be curious to hear what you think about. Uh, I'm finding more and more that identifying maybe the underlying. Uh, essence of my vocation or the underlying essence of what it is that I am tempted to do with my time. I'm trying to like, I, I'm somebody who kind of like, I, I shy away from having too much of a concrete identity. Okay. Even like, I don't know, acting like the musician, I think gets old to me. Uh, act like this stems from, this stems from further back, I guess. This stems from like losing my religious identity and then kind of, challenging all my identities like political identities anything that was based in the idea of belief i started to be really skeptical about Hmm. i started to think of your identity maybe maybe your identity is like what you produce instead of what you believe Hmm. and uh but what i found is that like i want to produce too many things i like want to be the I want to be the entrepreneur, but I want to be the musician, but Mm -hmm. I want to be the author, but I want to be like the playwright, but I want to be all these things. (laughs) And it's like, I don't, sometimes I find myself feeling like if I let myself practice a different art form for a little while, maybe I am betraying the music part Mm -hmm. in some way. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you ever experienced that. Well, um, we could unpack some of that other stuff too, which I'm very interested in belief versus sort of practice. You could sort of, or as you said, producing things. Mm. Um, I think for me, a lot of the artists that I really love, they are artists of a variety of mediums. So that might, they might be playing with mostly words, but they might be writing songs, poems, and books which are different art forms. Mm-hmm. So you think of Dylan, right? I just came out with a new book, The Philosophy of Modern Song. Super interesting and quirky. I'm loving it. Chronicles was amazing. And all the hundreds of thousands of songs that he's written, <laughs> right? And, and he has all this poetry that he would write to make into the songs, like all of that. It, you know, he didn't like get into films and script writing but actually some of the big hits that he had were written for movies Hmm. were like as a song in a movie somewhere so it wasn't like tv film placement in the same way that we think of it today but if you sort of like go through his catalog and you say why did he write this song it was for a particular reason or obviously the hurricane right a social commentary on an injustice yeah so he wasn't just like in a room uh, only communing with the muse and writing out of his own sort of internal consciousness, though he did, and it was magical and spiritual <laughs> for all of us. There's a lot of other expressions, right, of the craft. I think he also does painting, doesn't he? That That is coming to mind. I think maybe, is it like sketches? I'm not sure, but I was, uh, because of this question that I've posed to you, I've been looking around at other people's websites trying to see how they deal with it and navigate it okay and i looked at his and it was like paintings and i was like what is that and i looked and he has paintings in some art gallery and that was all i really saw okay we should look into this afterwards (laughs) because i i now it's sort of like triggering for me something that i think is true and so 
if this hypothesis is there, right, that there sort of is like a creative wellspring and it's ever flowing and you are tending to that and like letting it sort of come out in all of these different ways, then I think it can be a little bit less like distraction and more like CrossFit. And you're actually by sort of flipping to these different modalities, you can kind of like strengthen different skills. Mm, yeah. Um, so that's how I've tried to think of it. I mean, I'm not like doing Kintsugi every day. You know, it's it's something I'm doing maybe once every couple of weeks and then I'm doing it around when I'm leading the I lead like inst- I'm an instructor for Kintsugi for different small groups. So I'm doing it there. Um but it sort of being a part of my consciousness is the real like important change for me versus just like I need to be the best at this one thing kind of playing in these other spaces. Yeah. I think it can be a place that you are expressing just that maker energy. That makes sense to me. Uh, I think what I notice and I don't like this and I hate to have to even say it out loud, but like, I know artists and I know of artists who they just are so uh, they're thought of as like one thing. Mm -hmm. And that like when I was looking around at people's websites, I was trying to figure out like what are like, what, what is the difference here? And so like, for example, your, your name, it's like, it becomes this brand Mm. and like, I don't know, like uh, the Avett brothers, they're just one thing, the yeah. Avett Brothers. And you can buy their merchandise or you can go see them in concert or you can buy their CDs or their albums or whatever. The Avett Brothers is one brand that represents the music they make. And then like Scott Avett is a visual artist and he has a website dedicated to specifically that. Sure. But it kind of, you know, that's very much secondary and his visual art like abilities are not mentioned on the Avett Brothers website at all. It's yeah. not, people like so often to pretend like, it's the authenticity factor of the art and the artist that, that we love so much is just like, Oh, I love this person, but you mm. don't, it's not like you love the totality of that person. You love this piece of like what they represent artistically and, and the way that they do it. Mm-hmm. But you know, there's a lot of Scott Avid or any of the Avid brothers that we don't celebrate on their website. We, we boil them down to the one thing that we think of when I was looking around at Dylan's website, he had all that stuff on there. Mm-hmm. Like, obscure stuff like movies he's been in and, and like, or like, yeah, movies he's been affiliated with, uh, I think were listed on there and just all the different things he does. Uh, that was the outlier. Like very few people I could find really treated themselves like Renaissance people. Mm. But a lot of the artists I know and think of, they're just like, man, like all I want to do with my life is music. <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. I, I remember the day I stopped feeling that way. Mm. I remember before I got an art grant from the city, I w- it was just like music and songwriting was all it was. And the day that I went to receive my grant, I met an editor at The Relish, and I talked to her about freelancing. And I, she was like, yeah, you can freelance with the paper if you want to, because I was asking about it. Okay. And I remember the feeling of like, wow. I'm going to do this. I'm not just a songwriter, I guess. Like, Mm. I'm also now going to be a freelance journalist. This is going to be crazy. And since then, that door to, like, you can do all these art forms if you want to, it's there and it's, like, scary to me. It's Mm. like, I don't know what's on the other side of that. And the more that I try to, like, I get tempted to poke my head through that door, the more I'm, like, the success for most songwriters is to only stay committed to songwriting. 
And I'm wondering, like, I, mm. I'm having a real conflict there. Like, well, do I want to succeed as a songwriter or do I want to succeed as an artist of all kinds? You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it, in some ways it kind of goes back to the craft conversation yeah. around, um, like, consistency at the work and being a professional in the work. And so I think if you were saying you know, okay, Tiffany, I'm, I really, I'm going to be a professional songwriter and I'm going to be a professional world-class woodworker. And I'm also picking up graphic design (laughs) and I'm going to make money on that too. I'd be like, okay, well, these are all artistic (laughs) expressions, but can you really be excellent at all of them at the same time? And if you were like, well, it's just me and my dog right now. I have, you know, seven days times 10 hours. You know, I have like 80 hours a week. I can work. I think I can. Then that's where some people actually can do multiple things really well because their life is really focused on their, on their work outcome, right? On their, on their, their producing of those things. And I don't mean work in a pejorative way. I mean like the work of life, the work of being, a human maker. Yeah. So I think depending on sort of the composition of life and like how many, how much time you have to like invest in each particular craft area, excellence will move at different rates. This is my own experience and sort of this, you know, Mm -hmm. the journey with what you're describing. Um, and I think that often I've come back to like, there's a core inner artist, like who is that core inner artist and what, uh, is that work. And so I think for me, like that core inner artist is really kind of a storyteller and a poet. Yeah. Um, more than being a musician, like I love playing piano and guitar, but I more than love playing that. I like hiring people like Michael Anderson, (laughs) the local piano player, you know, composer to play with me Mm because his inner artist is like a composer musician. So I love collaborating with people who have a different inner artist than I have. Um, So I think that if we can have different, we kind of have like a core, a core place that we know we're investing. We're trying to become excellent. That's our profession. And then we have these other places that sort of like help us love it again. And they sort of serve as these lesser loves that help us have our love filled and, and reminded and encouraged I think that's how I think of it versus like competing first loves that gets very tiring. Yeah. But if you sort of know, like, here's the real, here's the main thing. And then these other things feed into that. Cause if you're doing these interviews, you're getting fed stories and inspiration and creative insights that can then help shape you in your core artist self, which might be being a songwriter. Yeah. That's, that's very in line with, that, like that essence or that, that bit that you were just talking about, the core bit is yeah. kind of what I was think what I think of as, as like essence bit for myself. Yeah. And that's the part that I'm not really sure exactly yet how to articulate what that essence is. I saw something earlier, t- earlier that was talking about this business guy that I like to listen to sometimes on YouTube. Uh, he was talking about mission statements, personal mission, mission mm. statements, like Oprah's mission statement was something like, to be a teacher and for, and for what, what did she say? It was something like to be a teacher and for my, for my students to think of me as somebody who uh, inspires them to 
be more than they are. Hmm. And it was like, yeah. Like, when I think of her show. That's what you think of. That's the mood of it. Mm -hmm. Like, that's who she was to people. It's not, it wasn't just like she hosts a show. It was like for people who watched her, like, they really got something from it, like, at at the time. She was like one of the last, you know, serious icons, I think, of culture. Uh, in that in that way and yeah yeah I think I'm trying to like identify to what that means but it's a it's a hard thing sometimes to identify that core purpose you know that you have oh yeah and I think we're in an era of sort of um the expectation is that you're able to distill your expansive humanity into a soundbite. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I think some people are able to do that and I congratulate them. And I think that's wonderful as clearly evident by the nature of our conversation. I have not achieved that yet. <laughs> I am, uh, all, you know, the journey is complicated. I'm in the middle of it and I don't, you know, it's interesting, but it doesn't really totally make linear sense yet or even cyclical sense. It's just, what it is. And I think that, um, some different people have different experiences. You know, I, uh, am dating a Rhodes scholar and his story, part of being a Rhodes scholar is like really being able to distill your story and sort of, uh, have a narrative that's like guiding you forward. And there's sometimes I'm so inspired by just the, the sort of crystal clear nature of some of the, um, insights and vocational clarity, but that doesn't necessarily make his journey easier than my journey. Um, but I'm definitely a different sort of person than like that singular sort of driving force. I so relate. Does that make sense? I so relate to that. Yeah. Uh, and that's, well, that actually, there's a part of that that's relevant to the other piece that you seemed interested in that I'll comment on real quick, which is, uh, I mean, really, I think that's what uh, that's what like religious views and ideologies and stuff that people believe often do for people. And, and they, they tell them like, well, this is the mod, this is like the concept I have for the perfect way to think about yourself and the mm. world. And so this is like my mission It like kind of simplifies their game plan for stuff. And I, I don't know if it's, 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 I don't think it's true with artists in general, but at least for myself and what I was telling you, you know, how I, I kind of tried to orient my mind toward like, well, your identity really is what you create, what you produce, what you, what you practice, mm. I think is the word you used. Um, that's like my concept of identity more so than just like the way I believe things. But what that means sometimes is if I'm not working on something, I have no identity. Sure. Of course. That's yeah. way different than somebody like what you just described. Somebody who can clearly state like, well, this is the, this is the path that I'm on because I decided this mm. or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think in those two sort of uh, constructs you just laid out, like that, the like the identity is in the work, or like the identity is in like the path, the sort of arrow in the sky. I think the space that I've been journeying through in my own life in that over the last few years is one is like kind of a third way. I don't know if it's on a different path or if it's related or whatnot. Of like uh, resting in the idea of being beloved. Mm. And that sort of this core self is held within love and is made for love. And that there is so much openness and spaciousness in that, that it could have both an arrow or like a productivity posture. Um, But both could actually be sort of uh, getting their animating life from a sort of sense of I'm beloved. And so out of that, I will act 
and move. So it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a side hook over, but that's kind of been a thing I've been really working on less, less sort of specific, uh, beliefs. And I feel like in some ways my vocational arrow is a little bit wobbly in the sky. So it's not, that's totally there, but I do feel this really, um, anchoring sort of sense of belovedness and like that I was created to create and I'll sort of keep on doing that work and seeing what unfolds from it. Hmm. Beloved. And so when you say that you are beloved, like that idea, Mm -hmm. does that imply like by someone, you know, like, does that imply a third party that's like sort of a, like in approval of you and and of your dignity as a person or something Mm. like that? I think it does imply that because something outside of oneself is holding oneself. But I also think that that's a, a thing in, in the deepest, truest space within each of us. So I'm not sort of making an ontological claim of the otherness of the divine mm-hmm. or of God with it. But um, I think on my own journey, I've experienced the animating principle that I'm not alone And that I am sort of in a way that's beyond my comprehension held by love Mm. and in love. Um, And how that shapes out or which sort of theological thing uh, is the container for that, I think I have a lot of humility around. Um, Yeah. 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 Okay. (laughs) I'll leave the... (laughs) I'll leave that conversation for somebody else, but yeah. Is uh, that, do you, uh, like with religious stuff, is that mm-hmm. something you prefer not to necessarily go into great detail about? Um, I'm open to, you know, conversations about that, but I just think that we're in an, uh, I think we're in a day and age where there's uh, words mean such different things to different people. Yeah. Um, that, uh, I'm, I'm the daughter of a, I'm an evangelical minister, so I come from a very, very particular defined background. And I think part of my own journey around like faith and belief has been one of like holding true and finding truth in like where is that anchor of love? And there are expressions and definitions that I have for myself, but sort of in the public platform, I haven't felt like that was the space that I needed to kind of like stitch all those pieces together. I think that faith and, um, you know, how one thinks about God and how one thinks about themselves and in relationship with the world, those are big conversations Yeah, and they're intimate. And, um, you know, sometimes people are called to public platforms with that. But for me, I feel like my work is more to be a painter of the different light that I see through song and through Kintsugi and then to have more conversation level, uh, off mic discussions on what that looks like in like individual lives and stories. I think that's great. Yeah. I, uh, I, I think I relate to that idea of the intimacy of it. And that's, and the, which is why, uh, just, just to share a little bit about this and I won't ask you about it and we won't have to talk about it, but um, I, I came from like a Baptist upbringing that result, like eventually I became like very outwardly, uh, expressively atheist. Okay. And I felt that the lack of clarity and the lack of like 
caution that religion was talked about with toward people, you know, like the, the kind that I was subjected to, uh, I felt like needed to be challenged by atheism. And mm. so that's what I did for a long time. Uh, and now, you know, a lot of my perspective on all this stuff has really shifted around a lot to the point where I think truly, um, religious, I think, I think what we're, what we see on a day to day level of just like simplified religious language being at war with atheistic language, I think is like understandable or, yeah. uh, to be expected when people are talking simply. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I think. I think really the best anyone can do is to have some humility and not claim to, um, well, I think what I find so preposterous about all of it at this point Mm. is people who are comfortable dictating to other people, God's character and God's personality. And, uh, I'm like, man, just be careful about that. Mm. (laughs) That's my only thing is just like for a human being to, to basically speak on behalf of God. I'm just like very like, like just be careful with it. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean I hate it. doesn't mean that I, mm. uh, I'm not, I don't even call myself like, like anti-theistic or atheistic or anything like that anymore. I'm just saying I, you know, I, I just think, I think it's, I think it's a reasonable thing for yeah. us to be like very, uh, humble about anything we think we might know about something like the concept of God or whatever. Hmm. So that's where I found myself landing after, after a lot of turmoil between those two identities. Yeah. Just a bunch of way. Like I was so, I I have some regret about like, cause I was, I didn't take the road you did where I was like cautious about it in that way. Mm -hmm. Uh, at with, with whatever, with that, that intimate conversation, I started like writing essays on my own website and stuff about atheism. Okay. So, uh, I was just like really outward with it. And, I'm sure I, I mean, I know some people wrote me and told me how disappointed they were with me and stuff. And, you know, I get it, but, um, you know, I think at the time it just felt like it was kind of like that identity crisis of music. It was just like, this was, this is how I'm going to have to respond, (laughs) respond to the past for a little while. Yeah. Eventually it'll ring itself out. You were on a hero's journey I was. in that space, right? <laughs> You're, you kind of, you leave home. Yeah. That's the scary, traumatic part of that story arc. And, you know, eventually we sort of come, we find our allies and new voices and a place back of integration. Um, That's this, right. You know, to your new, your new space, your new version of, of wholeness. So where did your language for like the hero's journey stuff, like where did you get in, where did you learn all that? Mm. Well, that was actually something that, I mean, Joseph Campbell, who was sort of the great myth writer, you know, or kind of naming that language. I'm not like a huge reader of his work, but know of it conceptually. And I learned about that in Nashville, just it kind of came up in different creative communities. Mm. But the work that I did in New York with this executive community, one of our tasks was to come up with themes for what we called uh, Jeffersonian dinners. We didn't call them that. That's what they are called. <laughs> it's a, a thing you can Google. And the idea is just like a single table topic for a group of people, like seven to 12 people. And you come up with this idea and you sort of send people maybe a reading or something in advance and they have to kind of get into that content and come together and have a conversation over dinner. It's very simple. Um, and one of the themes that we chose was the hero's journey. 
and had uh, a colleague of mine, she kind of printed off this chart of, you know, the different stages. And we would ask, where are you at in your hero's journey right now? Mm. Knowing that it's not a single loop. It's like you go through it many times in your life. So you're an executive, you're running this like huge company, you're a CEO, you have all these employees. People might say, well, you're obviously wherever the peak of human existence is, like that's where you are because <laughs> you've got money and you've got a position. Um, but actually even somebody in a place like that could be on like sort of the downward spiral. Maybe they're in a job that they actually like don't feel like they're living out their vocation. And they look at someone like you and they're like, wow, like Tyler actually has space to create like that's all I've ever wanted and mm-hmm. I've never had it and they're like finally processing through that sort of journey and that desire and to get to a place where they're creating again is going to take some like hero level courage so it was really that group of people and seeing that we're all in different places on our journey and not in like some trite way but in a really like hard real way and um you never really know where somebody is until you kind of sit down with them and have a conversation and you hear where they where they think that they are and and honor that perspective is this something that you notice being aware of as you go through life now and like you is this the hero's journey stuff like are you often assess do you ever assess uh Mm. that for yourself still well, I uh, have a new project that I'm launching called uh, Artistic Leadership, and it tries to weave together the work that I did at the CIA, sort of like studying people and being strategic and writing and strategy, dealing with unknowns with this craft of being a songwriter, or musician, and having different artistic practices. So I'm building a platform that creates an opportunity for companies to like bring in a creative to lead strategy sessions with these different modalities. Mm. And I thought this would be a lot easier <laughs> than it has ended up being, which uh, is not a surprise. Um, but I was on the phone with a friend of mine, uh, one of my colleagues from this company and I was telling her where I was at, and I was like, it's so hard. <laughs> Nobody's hiring me, and I, I need to make some money. And I was, like, listing all of my woes. And she goes, well, you know, you're, you're on the hero's journey, and it's going to get harder before it gets better. And I was like, not helpful. And I just, like, started <laughs> weeping. And then, like, a couple weeks later, we were talking about something in her life, and I was like, well, you know, Steph? you're on the hero's journey and it's going to get harder before it gets better. And she like started crying. So I think that, um, it does. It's, I think I really believe that these stories outside of ourselves help us, um, sort of find joy in the journey and, mm. um, you know, laugh just a little bit, have a little bit of light, you know, like Leonard Cohen says, like come through the crack, that the crack is where the light gets in. And I think that, for me, metaphor and sort of um, these these thick images let me sort of say, okay, I'm not the only human on the face of the planet who's ever had an identity crisis around my brand and yeah. my journey as an artist. And just be able to kind of say, all right, this is this is the human experience, and um, like the word life means life for a reason it's this whole continuum that we have while we're here in this time and space so man stories have such a strange impact Mm. and i know even still like 
I used to I used to notice this and other people would notice it of me and and I still notice it of myself that when I watch really good movies uh I like collect little things from characters and I'm like oh I'm going to like put that in my toolbox mm-hmm. uh, and and it's just it's weird cuz I don't do that otherwise I don't like I don't experience people on that level hmm. but I ex- like maybe every once in a while some but like I can think of a handful of conversations I've had with people who said pretty profound things that I made note of in that moment, but that's pretty rare. But in, in the, in the boiled down life, the experience of a movie, I collect those things often. And, uh, it's just strange. It's just strange that, that movies deliver those in the way that they do in a way that's like so hard to deny, not just movies, but stories in general, you know, that's why that's why we make movies because totally. stories do that. Yeah, I mean, a, a really well-told story in film, I think, because it has so many different um, crafts in it. It mm-hmm. has music, it has imagery, it has you know, it has like texture and sound, and the individual characters and the overarching plot. You get so you know, there's just so many layers of creativity in a full-on film. Yeah. Um, that I, I totally, um, I totally resonate with that statement. There's something about, I, I always want to have my music in films because it's just, you, it takes it to that next level. You know, you're just like, okay, now you're seeing visually what I was singing about sonically and it's a different story. So it's showing how universal what I was talking about is. And that is just so much fun. Yeah. Have you seen, I just watched, um, Allied this week. Have you seen Allied? Is it Brad Pitt? Yeah. Yes, I have seen it. Yeah, I've never World heard of it. Two? Yeah. Is, okay. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know her name, but she was. I recognized her from from um, Public Enemies. Okay. She was the. She was Johnny Depp's counterpart, and she was Brad Pitt's counterpart in this movie. But yeah, just I never heard of it, but it was really, 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 really good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like. Uh, the struggle of being lied to and betrayal and yes. Yeah. That was a heavy film. Do you have a favorite movie? Well, right now (laughs) I am absolutely in love with Marcel, the shell with shoes on. Have you seen it? I've not seen the, the feature film yet. It is. It's worth it. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Yeah. I had to hold myself back. It's like one of those things where you think you're like really good at impersonating somebody and then uh, you like do it too often and people around you are like, please just (laughs) don't use the shell voice anymore. Yeah. So I am obsessed with it. I just, I think there's something profound in the film. And I love, whenever I get into something, I always like want to know the whole story of the backstory behind things. Yeah. And what I was sort of discovering was the filmmaker, this guy named, um, oh, I'm going to butcher his name, so I won't say it. I think his name is Dan. Uh, he and Marcel, who's Jenny Slate, are married. Mm. And they did the first little bits in their Brooklyn apartment. And the reason why they were sort of there creating together is because she got on SNL. Right. Did you hear the story? I, she- I remember her being on being SNL on, for a very short time. And it was a very short time because she cussed on on air. Yeah. 
And I guess that must break some sort of a contract rule. And it was part of why, according to this interview that I saw with her, like that was why she got removed. And so she was sort of at this like ultra low point of her life. And it was like through the creation of this little character who just sort of sees the goodness and everything Mm. that was part of her kind of healing journey. And it's also been the artistic creation that's launched a beautiful platform. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing Marcel uh, those videos mm-hmm. uh, back in the day and falling in love with them. Didn't really know. Didn't I? Don't do that. So I didn't really like study it or like learn mm-hmm. learn whatever. But you know, years go by and you see her on Parks and Rec, and then yeah. like you see clips of her on SNL, and then some YouTuber puts out a video. I think I saw. I, I YouTube is like my pot. It's like it's like a it's like my TV station. I don't Got know it. what. It's yeah. like I, that's just how I consume uh, content. Yeah, not even always cons- like not always in a focused way, but I like always kind of have some some of that going on when I'm just busying myself with organizational work or whatever or yeah. editing work or something like that. So I remember seeing a video about her losing that job, and I think it was a little a little controversial and a little confusing because uh, mm-hmm. other people have like accidentally done that before and not not you lost know. their jobs. Yeah, so That's interesting. Yeah, there might have been more going on, but. Anyway, Marcel the Shell, we they had that at Aperture, and I didn't see it in theaters, but well, it's on Amazon Prime right now. You can buy it. Or okay, rent it. I might do that. And it's so good. I need to see it. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Oh my gosh! Yeah, there's there's a scene at the end. I'm not gonna say it all the way through because I want you to have the moment for yourself. But uh, it's like whenever I have a hard day, or I have like a moment of struggle, or I just feel sort of like alone. I can like bring this scene to mind Mm. and it's like a salve. And I think this is all a long winded story around like, what is it about film? And there's something about the way that the storytellers use the narrative and the way the shots are made and everything that for me, in some like deep part of my human essence, like Marcel is like my spirit animal. And I don't know what that says about me, (laughs) but I'm comfortable with it and I'm okay with naming it because it's like, there are just certain scenes in the full length that I think capture something beautiful about, about feeling beloved. Mm. And in a, and just sort of feeling like something outside of you, like cared for you enough to like leave something for you that would, that would let you feel joyful that day. And Mm. it's a, it's a really powerful, powerful film. Well, I might have to watch Marcel the Shell with shoes on tonight. I think so. (laughs) I remember I was watching the, I, I, I don't, don't know how to explain how things work. I rearranged my house recently. Okay. It's looking good. Since I did that, I started watching movies. I don't know how these things work, but I think, I think my couch was too far away from my TV. Okay. (laughs) And now, anyway, um, (laughs) so here recently I've been like catching up on movies and I watched the Irishman recently. Okay. And I I was having a similar experience to what I was describing before, like watching Robert De Niro's character and being like, man, there's something I admire about him. Hmm. I should like, I should be more like this, like judging myself according to something. And 
I was watching him be a tough guy and be kind of intimidating and sort of command the space he was in. And then as I was, I was, I was noticing that and thinking of his character and being like, I could be more like him if I wanted to. Then something happened where I was like, wait a second. I could be more like Robert De Niro if I wanted to. The mm. actor, like the artist who is an artist. Yeah. And I started to think about him instead of the character in the movie. I started to try to like separate the creative person from the uh, distilled version mm. or whatever. And I don't know what that meant, but I found that interesting. Mm. Um, I fell in love with this very short Ted talk with Ethan Hawke hmm. that kind of touches on what you're describing. Like, you know, we respect Ethan as an actor. You kind of think of him in these different roles, but to, he, he breaks down sort of a couple of his guiding principles as an actor that drive him on who he is. And he, he tells this story about how when he was younger, he was, uh, I think somebody told the story to him. I'd have to like watch it again to note the sequence, but it's about the poet Allen Ginsberg mm -hmm. who went on like a late night show and was like singing and playing the harmonium and talking about like Harry Krishna and just sort of doing something really kind of abstract and, and poetic and how Alan comes back to his like New York elite friends and they're all like, what are you doing? You make an idiot, idiot of yourself like on national TV, like doing these like random activities, you know? And Alan says like, that's the point. I'm a poet. It's my job to do something that sort of wakes people up. And he says like, it's my job to play the fool. Mm. And that most people sort of, Hawk like elaborates on this and says like most people come home at the end of the day and they just like sort of tune on the boob tube and they're just like watching some TV and they're just like eating their chicken dinner and all of a sudden they come to a channel and something unique is happening on that and it's like a poet playing a harmonium singing about Harry Krishna or something you know it's like what is what is this and what does that mean about my life like what am I you know insert these what questions mm -hmm. get sparked inside of the observer and Hawk's sort of point is like if you're an artist like part of your role is just play the fool and I think that that has been really caring with me in the work that I've been doing of you know sometimes I sing a song that I think is like particularly excellent I'd love people to get on board with that and then other times I'm like it's actually just the process of being the artist that I feel like is my greatest contribution um, to the communities that I'm around. And mm. a lot of that is just being faithful to continuing to create and believing that that matters and believing it matters for others and believing it matters for myself. And if you were with Robert De Niro, I bet that that's something that you would pick up that he believes. Well, I'd love to hear what you think about this. How do you deal with, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you deal with this or not, but in my brain, I want to believe what you just said. Some, and, so, and sometimes there's a conflict that goes on because I mm. feel as though I'm like now at a stage where I'm trying to convince myself that like um, that the world and that individuals like that they are impacted by the arts in the same way or that they care about the arts in the same way. And I'm constantly feeling like within 
music and within story of all kinds that we are in a in a time where there's like a hard disconnect because the this is uh, this might just be a story I'm telling myself in my head or whatever you know mm. like we still consume film and we still listen to music when we're like in our car or whatever but as far as a deep focus on these things it's just that it's just that our attention is so uh so shattered mm. because of smartphones and because like people get media from all sorts of different places yeah so i guess to add a little bit of context Another a, a thing I heard about, like, oh, success, success is this, you know, like you have to be in service. You have to like you, you, the level of level of of what you get from your craft or whatever is going to really have a lot to do with how much you're serving the mass, how much you're serving more people. Mm-hmm. But in my head, I'm like, is it like how are we still serving people? Is music still serving people? Mm. I don't know. Do you ever, does that disenchantment ever tempt you? Oh, all the time. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, well, we're, we're in an era of the creative entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and we sort of think that if something is high quality enough, like it'll eventually make money enough that you would then all of your bills will be paid and you'll have a, in a retirement account. And I think that something I've been really working on over the last like decade probably is to sort of uh, say that it's about the excellence of the craft and sometimes that intersects with market interest and need and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. And the history of art shows us that. Like not everybody that we consider masters now was successful in the time of their, when they were alive, right? A lot were, it's not unusual, but not everybody. It's not like the, um, standard of art historians to be like, were they successful when they were living? It's actually like, how did it work over time? Sometimes people had great bodies of work when they were alive. They were super popular, but we don't actually listen to them anymore. There's also a lot of examples of that. So I think that some, the thing that I try to hold on my own journey with that question you know does music matter anymore are people paying attention I think okay there's the reality of consumption is different people just are cycling through I gave you my record it's 19 minutes long and I charge like 50 dollars for it because it was a very high labor activity and it's there's only 300 of them printed and I probably will never print them again so I'm comfortable with that relationship of value and only probably like 30 people have ever paid me any money for that vinyl after all the money that went into it. Right. But I have had really powerful moments of individuals listening to that vinyl and saying like, there's something deep here, something authentic and rich. And I know enough about the process of creating that, that there's excellence in the vinyl. And I'm really proud of it, even though it's a total like loss <laughs> for me from financially. So I think that the way that I try to cope with that disillusionment is play music live in intimate contexts for no money. Places where it matters because it's like changing the spiritual landscape of that room hmm. by me playing a song for them. And it takes me back to sort of like the troubadour posture 
of like music just in the home and a thing that people did because music is a thing that just cha- changes atmospheres. It changes the room. It's a, there's a, a physics to it, right? Yeah. It, there's just a reality to music and why it works on a human level. And it shows up like really far back in human history. It's always popping up in cultures. So I think that that's where I've found the best salve in my own journey is to just say, can I, can I play you a song right now? Can I offer a song here? Uh, you don't, you know, it doesn't need to be kind of couch anything else. I just think it'll matter. And when people experience it, they're like, wow, that really mattered. They don't exactly know how they would have comp- compensated me for that moment. And they don't know exactly what to do to help me. But they're really grateful that they just experienced what they experienced. And yeah. then that reminds me like, okay, I don't know how this all nets out, but I know that it matters and it means something. If I'm being totally honest, I think that that is, uh, the, I think that's the ideal version, I think mm-hmm. of what it means to be an art. I think that, I think that when you have a huge production to put on that costs money to put on, it makes sense for tickets to be expensive. I think that, uh, when you, when your film, when your music is in a film and that film has a budget to pay artists for music, you know, then that's fine to charge me. I'm not saying that money in music is a bad idea, but there's also a mentality within it. That's like, this is my, this is my job, man. I don't have a dad. Like I don't do this for free. Mm. And I think that that, I think that does lose something sometimes, you know, uh, I think if the only thing you ever do for free is radio shows, because you think like it will, it will result in money to you or whatever. Like I think, I just think there is something meaningful about Mm -hmm. it. And I think when you, when you try to reserve it for your billfold or whatever in that way, um, I think it can lose some of its like service nature, Mm. you know? So I totally, I admire that. So then I have one remaining question and then I think I might actually have to let you go. Um, how many secrets from the CIA can you share with us? (laughs) Well, you know, I'd have to, well, I wouldn't You'd be have to kill, kill you. me. I wouldn't okay. because I was an analyst and I just sat at a computer all the time, but maybe somebody else out there, you know, would You'd have, have to, to email someone yeah, to kill me. To, yeah, exactly. You know, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll leave that up to the other, the other people who are more skilled than I am. That's for sure. She was so good. Yes. You mentioned the dog. So this, you know, she, I just, she, she, she came here yesterday. Um, <laughs> She is. She is. Uh, she's pathetic. She came here yesterday. She's so cute. It's not as of today. It's not decided if I'm keeping her or not. But her name is not certain yet. So really, do you have a? <laughs> yeah. Do you have like a a beta name? Uh, I'm thinking about Marble. Wow. And I'm thinking about Honey. There's two names on that are on the table right now. Okay. Yeah. See, I, I, I'm a real big fan of um, like human, sort of complex human names for animals. Like Timothy? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And or like, you know, um, maybe like uh, Marsha. Uh-huh. Because then it's like she's outside, like let's see the keeper. And then she's outside running around. And you're like, Marsha, Marsha, <laughs> get in here, Marsha. Stop chewing on that stick. Looks like and she then, already thinks her name's Marsha. And then everybody around is like, that's so weird that like a friend of his named Marsha is over and she's like chewing on a stick. It, not, wouldn't that be funny? It is. It is funny when a real person. Like a real human name, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, and then it's just like, you're here and you're like, hey, Marsha. <laughs> 
it's good to be home. I don't know. I think she could kind of resonate with it. My oh, my sister had a pit bull <laughs> named Samantha. And That's it was exactly kind of what I'm that. talking about. Yep. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And then what was her name? My friend has a cat named, what the hell is that cat's name? Fred. Cat's name Fred. Uh, I have a thing for that. That would be funnier. I, well, I shouldn't say funnier. I can't remember this cat's name, but, <laughs> you know. If his name was Fred, you probably would have remembered it. <laughs> True. Right? There's people that name him stuff like toothpaste or something weird. Yeah, and that's, it's like, I don't know. That's That feels a little abstract to me. I'm, yeah. not, I'm supportive of it, but it's, yeah, I'm more in like the, the human name situation. I like Marble because it's a pleasant sounding name and she's like, I don't know. Something about her solid color. I was like, she looks like a marble. You know, and you could call her Marb. Marb. <laughs> yeah. You know? I also, I think Marble sounds like a real name. That doesn't, that no one's named. I don't know. I think, I, I'm supportive of Marble. It's unique, too. Do you think? She's kind of, you know, supermodel dog. So I feel like, uh, I feel like, you know, Honey is, it's, my, do- my brother's ne- dog was named Honey. Oh, really? So it, it's like, this is a very different dog <laughs> than that dog. Yeah. And I'm, so I'm supportive of Marble. You could call her Wrinkle. <laughs> wrinkle, that would be a good one. Wrinkle. <laughs> She is a she's the sleepiest dog in the world. She's super lazy. That's yeah. great. That's what you want in a dog. I hope she. Uh, we'll see. So I'm glad you got to meet her. I Thank hope, you. you know, maybe she'll be here next. Good time. Good to see you, Marble. Yeah. I don't know. I can't tell what she wants. I can't either. She just is. She's like, let me let me go back to bed. <laughs> she's just hanging out. Yep. There she goes doing her thing. Well. um... Hey, I'm really glad that we got to talk and I got to make your acquaintance. Are you playing anywhere anytime soon? Uh, Well, I'm playing tomorrow, which would be December 22nd. uh, So you probably probably wouldn't be in time. Yeah. Um, But and then after that, I'm actually going to L.A. for a few months. I'm going to be based in L.A. January and February. So I'm trying to put together some house shows out there. So uh, open to different opportunities on the West Coast. And then I'll be back uh, on the East Coast come, like, March and uh, April. Cool. Well, yeah. if you got some shows in the area in the spring or summer, hopefully I'll be able to catch one. Thank so. you. That'd be great. Cool. Well, thank you again. And I guess, uh, I guess until next time, that'll do it. Sounds good.